0: Welcome back to Muppets in Space, a Farscape Rewatch podcast on the Incomparable. Tonight, we're covering Season 1, Episode 7, PK Tech Girl, and Episode 8, That Old Black Magic. I'm your host, Eric Scott, and joining me once again, as always, my fellow co-host, who I'm pretty sure is not some magical being out for my soul, Jason Johnson.
1: Uh, you know, I'm I'm good for now. I might go for some life force later, but I, I'm good for right now. A little
0: take out later,
1: yeah yeah you know a little chinese little life force it'll be all right
0: and uh, i guess until otherwise notified uh, as our ever-present reminder we are following the wikipedia episode order for season one instead of amazon prime as amazon's a little out of whack by doing air date not production date all right so season one episode seven pk tech girl moya comes across a peacekeeper ship lying dead in space Crichton and Xan want to leave in case whoever did that is still around somewhere. Dargo, however, wants to go check their data for possible charts back to their homeworlds, And Aaron says she needs to know the name of the ship. Rigel says it's the Zelbinian, the most feared ship in the Peacekeeper Armada. Well, I guess it used to be. They dock with it, and Aaron, Crichton, and Dargo go over to investigate. They search around the ship, but Rigel is anxious about being docked to it because it was the first ship he was tortured and imprisoned on after being deposed as Dominar. Crichton comes across a console with the lights on, and Aaron says that someone must have turned it back on recently. He spots a young woman who tries to run away, but Aaron and Dargo attack her until Crichton stops them. The woman, who we learn is a peacekeeper technician named Jelena, recognizes them all as escaped prisoners. Crichton asks how she knows that, and Aaron replies that she's a tech from Kreese's ship, the ship that Eren used to be on aaron questions her in the usual peacekeeper fashion more like a drill sergeant addressing a recruit uh, but Crichton says to give her a break aaron says because she's from kreis's ship he must be nearby and she will only lie to buy them time for kreis to return meanwhile rigel is still refusing to go over to this albinian so xan tells him that it would do him a lot of good to go confront his demons jelena tells the others that kreis sent her unit over and two days later another ship appeared and destroyed their marauder dargo says it's the Sheyangs but they couldn't have done all the damage, and they find out that there are no records because the ship's data stores have been thoroughly scavenged. Jelena then thanks Crichton for stopping Aaron from killing her. Roger finally does go over to the Zobinian, and while he's over there, he spits in Jelena's face, showing his hatred of the peacekeepers. He goes off exploring and encounters a mean-looking peacekeeper that says hello and welcomes him home. The others come across a dead body, a Shiang victim who was part of Jelena's unit. Aaron recognizes him and asks what he was doing guarding her, and she says that Aaron's whole unit was demoted after her defection and can only be reinstated upon her death, which kind of seems rather harsh. Uh, Meanwhile, Pilot has spotted a ship, which Zan confirms is is a Sheyang vessel hiding just outside sensor range. Aaron asks Jelena why the Sheyangs are back and calls her a traitor because she knew they would return. Jelena says she's no traitor, and Crichton breaks it up telling Jelena that Eren is no traitor either, but Kreis gave her no chance like the one they are giving her. She tells them that she hid while the Sheyangs were scavenging everything. Dargo returns to Moya, where Zan is anxious to leave since Moya has no weapons. Dargo says the Sheyangs are cowards. Where they see strength, they flee, and where they see weakness, they destroy. Crichton, Aaron, and Jelena are trying to get the Zlobinians' shields operational, and Crichton seems to understand what Jelena's trying to do. The Sheyangs begin the weapons countdown. Dargo gets enraged that they have no offensive weaponry, and while he's stomping around yelling and screaming, Xan gets pilot to transmit that image of him to the Shayangs. When the Shayangs see the enraged Luxon, they kind of panic, and they immediately terminate their countdown. Crichton informs everyone that they can get the shields working, but it'll take four arns, or hours, as we would call it. Xan convinces Dargo to keep misleading the Shayangs to give them time Crichton and Jelena need to fix the shields. The Sheyangs don't believe Dargo has any soldiers with him who are aboard the Zilbanian. Xan uh, keeps trying to help Dargo by prompting him, but the Sheyang says he's trying his patience, and Dargo believes their next conversation will bring on an attack. Kreight and Angelina are getting close to repairing the shields. Rigel has gone back to Moya and is hiding, having visions of his torture, a peacekeeper named Captain Durka. Xan tells him Durka is long dead, but Rigel says he's not dead to him. Xan says he must find Durka's corpse because it will help set him free. Meanwhile, back on the Shang ship, uh, one of the Shangs overthrows their leader, Turak, and orders them to fire on Moya. Crichton, Jelena, and Aaron manage to get the shields activated just in time. However, a pilot informs them that the shields are not fully operational. It has uh, several weak spots, because it's really two systems overlaid on top of each other, and they only have one operational. Jelena agrees to help them, as they helped her, and will help install the other part of the shield on Moya. Later, she and Crichton are talking, and they end up kissing, just as Aaron walks in. Of course. Uh, She's clearly jealous and angry, but tries not to show it, and storms off. Crichton, seeing her reaction, goes after her and asks her if she's ever just clicked with someone. She replies that yes. Uh, At first, she found uh, Crichton quite interesting, but only for a moment, and that clearly surprises Crichton. Meanwhile, the Cheyangs launch a a bunch of troop pods, trying to breach the holes in the shield. One Cheyang pod manages to breach through to the Zilbinian. Aaron finds that Cheyang, but he shoots a fireball from his mouth at her, apparently. Aaron uh, dodges it but gets cut off from reaching Crichton and needs to go around the long way to get to them. Meanwhile, the Shi'ang attempts to burn down the door to the room where Crichton and Jelena are working, and eventually manages to get in. Uh, he shoots a fireball, which Crichton manages to evade. Then Eren shows up and shoots him, which makes him explode and rain down in flaming body parts. <laughs> Back on Moya, Crichton wants the others to let Jelena stay and get picked up by Krace, but the others don't want to give Krace another reason to come after them. Crichton says he's going to come one day anyway, and promises Dargo and Zan that Jelena will keep their presence a secret, And surprisingly, Aaron agrees. She says that Jelena could also be deemed irreversibly contaminated, the penalty for which is death, or worse, exile, just like she was. Aaron says Jelena won't tell Kreis anything about them. The Shi'angs detect the uh, command carrier on its way at maximum speed, and Dargo tells them he's sorry that they're leaving. His officers were preparing revenge. The Shi'ang smiles and says he knows he has nothing, but he used that well. Aaron tells Jelena that Kreis will ask her many questions and she says that she'll lie to him. Aaron mutters she wishes she had been that smart. Jelena says to Crichton that she'll never see him again, but Crichton insists they will someday, and they have a nice kiss before she leaves. Later, Crichton goes to see Aaron, who says she hates being ambushed. She says he got him in the end, but she didn't mean the Sheyang, on the ship. On her world, showing pain is, is a sign of weakness, and he should not presume to understand her. He says that though she always bashes him for being weak all the time, this time it's an advantage. He knows how she feels. She insists that it's impossible for him to know how she feels, and Crichton asks what it would be like for him if one day he finally gets to return home to Earth, and upon walking into his home, found his dad, friends, and all his family lying there dead. Aaron says she stands corrected and walks out of the room, leaving John alone with his thoughts. A couple pieces of trivia about this episode. This was the first episode filmed on its own. and I think we mentioned this before on a previous podcast, but uh, before they were filmed two at a time back-to-back. This change was made partly due to an upcoming holiday, and the creator of Farscape, Rocky O'Bannon, noted that shooting Episode 7 by itself became the only viable way to shoot and not lose days. When the film came in, it was much better, the crew was less stressed, the actors were less stressed because they weren't having to learn two scripts at the same time, and it became immediately apparent that it made a lot more sense to shoot the episodes individually. Jelena was originally meant to die aboard the Zilbinian, but the executive producer, David Kemper, wanted a love story. And he stated, this isn't just a science fiction show, it's a show about people. And finally, this uh, episode was apparently the first ever broadcast. It was shown as a sneak peek by the Sci-Fi Channel on March 12, 1999, just before the series began.
1: That seems like it would be a little confusing if you just started with this one. But, you know, I guess it does make a good sneak peek if you are just looking for the gist of the characters.
0: Yeah, because there was a lot of good character development uh, in this episode. But yeah, I guess as a, well, I guess you couldn't really
1: show the first episode as a sneak preview because then people really wouldn't get it. No, it just makes you wonder, you know, how much character development do people even understand if they don't know where they started? That'd be the, you know, sci-fi did a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense. And I'm not sure that which way this way one falls, but the show did get to premiere. So we'll, we'll call it successful.
0: Yeah, I mean, it probably it was going to air anyway. So maybe this is just to whet people's appetite and I don't know how many stats on how it did or not. But hey, the show ran for four years, right? So I guess it must have worked. So one of the things that I had to go look up because uh, obviously they have their own time scale uh, in Farscape like, you know, Battlestar Galactica had, you know, yarns and centons and all that kind of stuff. So apparently the zabinian was missing for a hundred cycles that they say. Um, I went and looked up like how long is a cycle in Farscape and they came back. It said, you know, a cycle is a year. So this ship's been missing for a hundred years, which kind of sounds strange. And then Rigel says he was overthrown 130 cycles ago before going to the Zabedian to be tortured. So Rigel has been a prisoner and a deposed
1: leader for 130 years. Really? Like how old is, (laughs) how old do Hynerians live? Right? Yeah. And and that I'm glad you looked that up because I missed that. I, I just immediately took cycles to be days and rolled with it. And you're looking back, it's like, you know, that probably doesn't work because that like makes everything too short. You know, they would have only been prisoners for a short amount of time. I didn't know if they were recent prisoners or what, but, you know, if, again, if he's been there for 130 years and the ship's been missing for a hundred, then A, does that mean their tech doesn't advance that much over a hundred years? But also, like you say, Rigel's been in prison for a long time. So I, I guess I just took it to be a lot shorter period of time and it seems like it was a lot longer than I even took into scope.
0: Yeah, because they said also that they also measure time by like, you know, half cycle, quarter cycle. And one of the episodes, I'm not sure if it's already previous or in the future. Or whatever, they're saying, like Dargo says, it's been like a, a quarter cycle, and and John says, yeah, it's three months, or something. So yeah, I, okay. So there you go. Timekeeping in Farscape. Yeah, well, good to have a, me- a metric, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it's cool too. I mean, I, I like when uh, shows have their own lingo, or their own language that you you get to learn as it goes. Like you know, they have their own swear words, which they've done a couple, and you know. The one that at least I remember is um, Frell, which is, starts with F, you know, I'm like, you know, you know what that means. Uh, so that's always nice to, you know, it's kind of like Battlestar Galactica had frack, same idea. So I love that. And I love when they have their own, you know, time keeping or other words that they throw in that, to make it seem like, yes, this definitely is a sci-fi show. It's not Earth. Well, uh, It's not what we're used and to. And that
1: makes sense, right? I mean, you know, we base all our time around Earth cycles, you know, rotations and, and orbits and things like that, that, that make no sense in a different galaxy. So why would why would their time measurement be anywhere close to ours? Much less the same terminology. Although, if you want to think about
0: it, how come those translator microbes don't translate those words into English? But whatever, we will not get It's 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 still cool. We don't care. Atmosphere, we won't get man. We need some bad. atmosphere. It is a space. It's a space right. show.
1: It requires atmosphere. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Since they can't breathe outside the ship, right? Yeah, atmosphere, right?
1: Well, there's atmosphere everywhere because we've proven that they can breathe everywhere they go. But that's beside the point, too.
0: Yeah. Otherwise, it would be a boring show. They walk out on the planet, they die because they can't breathe. So, yeah.
1: or, or they're always in spacesuits, and that's A, expensive, and B, you can't see characters' faces. So,
0: Yeah, which we haven't seen yet, and I can't remember from what I ha- do remember about this show if they ever did that, but I guess we'll find out as we go. One of the things I guess we kind of joked about last time, and actually the characters kind of did too, is a, that Dargo and, and Crichton say that it's been a while since they've been with the women, with 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 the women, <laughs> with women, <laughs> with the women, right? Uh, however, these last couple episodes seem to have taken care of that. Dargo had that last time on the um, "Thank God It's Friday" again, and they did not really explicitly say anything this episode, but it sounds like Crichton
1: and Jelena were a little closer than they appeared on t- on the screen. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think they've been pretty clear that these th- relationships happen in space, right? So. These characters are are covered. I'll probably mention it in other places, but I I get a little confused, I think, on the writer's intent because I guess I go into these shows expecting romantic tension between the main characters. And it is interesting to me that these writers have gone out of their way this, I mean, we're, what, episode seven? And uh, Crichton's been in relationships on multiple encounters. It's like every time they run into another civilization or another person in space, it's, you know, he and Dargo are taking turns on who's going to have the romantic interest. And it's, it just kind of is interesting to me. I mean, they did at least call out the Aaron relationship here, but uh, I wonder how long they're going to stretch that.
0: Yeah. And I guess it's the first time, at least on the side of Aaron, that she admits to being interested or she finds John interesting. So it's kind of like the first hints at the, at at the love interest possibly, you know, between the the two of them.
1: Yeah. And again, I don't, I, I guess I look at a lot of TV, the way they frame a lot of these scenes and stuff and. I don't know if it's the four by three aspect ratio where they're trying to cram as much stuff on camera as possible but the characters are always really close and so that always jumps out at me as you know i guess i, I read more into it than the show may want you to yeah i guess that's kind of comes with yeah
0: the because this is still yeah we're saying film in four three. it wasn't letterboxed or hd back then they didn't have that in 99. uh and i guess we learn that apart from jelena being part of aaron's well not unit i guess she was on the ship so aaron must have recognized her which I don't know how big these ships are, how big the crew is, but okay, Aaron recognizes her. Uh, and apparently we learned that her entire unit, because that was one of the people guarding her, guarding Jelena that she found that was dead on the ship, apparently that they can only get reinstated, they're all demoted by
1: craze, and they can only get reinstated after Aaron's dead. That's kind of harsh. <laughs> yeah, he, he he does seem to be the uh, petty, dictatorish captain, so not terribly surprising as we learn more about his character as we go, but yeah, definitely definitely petty and harsh and um it's going to hold unrealistic standards i think yeah and you know he is
0: out for revenge apparently not apparently but you know that's what he said in the original episode you know the pilot episode and what we'll see next episode spoiler not that we'll get there, you know <laughs> that, that yeah pretty much he's coming for him no matter what and so he's going to ignore you know he's going to do whatever he wants to do just to stay out there and hunt Crichton down so it's it, it definitely is keeping with his character so far
1: yeah and I, i'll be honest i did miss on my on my first watch that the 2 day uh timeline that that they'd been on the ship because that puts that puts him right there on top of them i mean they're i thought they had a lot more breathing room and it sounds like they're they're within a couple days of each other now at this point so not a lot of not a lot of room to to dodge around each other considering how large space is right
0: (laughs) yeah and it's not exactly clear just you know where any of these planets are anyway plus they're in the, the unknown regions or uncharted territories wherever they call it so it's must be uncharted for a reason like it's really big or it's really dangerous so that not a lot of people go out this way or at least not the peacekeepers anyway but yeah apparently he's doing a pretty good job at getting near where they are Acc- accidentally or not right i mean they don't know they're around here they're just out exploring the ship but that happens to be right where moya and company are
1: yeah and, and you know we may get there on a different episode i don't know if they ever get into it but i don't feel like i have a good grasp yet of rate of speed you know how fast does the crew travel versus how fast do the peacekeeper vessels travel and how well are they keeping up with each other you know it, i mean we've got starburst but i don't know how that relates to a certain speed cons- constant or any of that kind of stuff so it, it's kind of just loose they're around each other in these unknown regions but i don't really know that i have a, have a map yet of you know how far apart they are at any of these episodes
0: yeah they're still building out i guess that part of you know how space travel works for those kind of ships and obviously Moya is different because it's or, she's organic versus the peacekeeper ships which are you know more mechanical so yeah we don't know if they have the same you know drive speed you know obviously Moya has starburst Do the peacekeeper ships have some kind of starburst equivalent or warp drive whatever you want to call it like you said we'll find out probably i guess another kind of fun character development kind of areas with uh, the the Shayangs and Dargo and Xan when they're trying when John's like, you know, keep him busy while well, we got, you know, we need four hours to fix the shields, you know, go stall them, do something. And basically all they can do is talk to them on the, on the view screen. So Dargo doesn't want to lie to them. I guess that's, you know, the Lux and honor thing again. And then Zan's like, you know, next to him, like trying to convince him, no, no, you're not lying. You're just misdirecting.
1: Yeah. Which, you know, I think as, as you pointed out in an earlier conversation we had about it, you know, that's, that's a solid military tactic. So it's, it's kind of funny that his warrior race puts, you know, the honor, in front of the uh, effect of the, the combat tactic. But, you know, once again, Zan's proven that she's a the, the competent member of the crew, right? Everybody kind of has their part to play, and and she's the one who actually, you know, can get the job done where everybody else gets hung up on their own little moral issues.
0: Yeah, she seems more grounded of the the crew. Like, either it's because of her, her priest upbringing or, or training or whatever. You know, she's got more of a, a focused view, or like a realistic view, I should say, on things. You know, she knows you know if you're gonna to talk to these guys for four hours you are gonna have to say something to lie or bulk up you know yeah we got a ton of luxons on this ship and they're just waiting to jump over there and kill you if you come over here but you know, we're not we're not gonna do that right now because whatever you know just you have to keep bsing them you have to keep lying you know do something and then apparently you know she also when dargo was flipping out screaming yelling stomping around you know she had them project that over to the ship and the shangs were like you know oh no it's a luxon to stop stop the countdown stop shooting
1: yeah, I, I know it's a show that came a good bit later, and I've probably made more references to it than I should in this podcast, but um, I, I keep equating her to a Nara in my head of from Firefly, because that that character just seems so, part of it's the priest thing, I guess, but the other is just the, the competent character when everybody around them is so uh, hilariously incompetent, right? So <laughs> it, it. It always just, you know, the straight man's always a, a good one to have, and, and she does a good one, in this episode especially.
0: Yeah, she's, the, the I guess, the calming influence for the crew, right? And uh, I guess another funny thing I liked about the, this episode, about the shayangs. I guess if you breathe fire, you must have some kind of flammable gas inside you or something. So when Aaron shot him, he, like, exploded, and there were, like, flaming pieces of shayang kind of falling slowly, like, all over the room.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great hilarious effect, but it makes you wonder, you know, did they not encounter that in battle before and think about it? But yeah, yeah I think I'd, I'd be pretty concerned about getting shot at if I had the potential to explode.
0: <laughs> yeah, although, you know, throw a couple of fireballs around, everybody runs away, right? So, but not always. Sometimes they shoot back. Uh, I guess some more character development on the crew. Rigel, apparently we learned more about him. That, you know, he was, like we said before, you know, captured. You know, after he was deposed uh, from Hyneria, he was apparently tortured. This is the first ship he was tortured on you know, hundred and whatever years ago. And it was nice that, you know, see him getting some closure by finding Durka's office and kind of having that like closure
1: conversation scene and then you know, him leaving. And that's all we ever see. of him. we don't see much of him after that. Yeah. And, and I do agree. I think this was of all the episodes we've watched so far, this is the most character development we get for Rigel, which was nice. I, I don't know how much they'll carry forward. You know, will it affect his character going uh, in future episodes, but you know, up till now he's, he's been in a lot of the episodes and had some jobs but this is the first time we've i think we've seen something where he actually had closure of a life event so it'd be interesting to see how that does moving forward if they if they you know have it carry forward or if it was just kind of a fill that fill us in on what he's been through type of visibility
0: yeah because up to this point he's more or less been like the comic relief like you know he's you know stealing something from people and then saying no he didn't steal it or he's you know constantly you we know, make it make Every time he's you know eating nonstop, stuffing his face full of food, he's he's a glutton. So it was nice to see him actually get some dramatic range this time versus you know just being the conniving, sniveling comedian kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, he's been in prison. We've seen him you know be the diplomat to the cockroaches. He's he's done some useful stuff. But this was, I think, the first time we've we've had a closure of a historic event. So that's good.
0: Yeah. Anything else about?
1: No, I think seven? we've. We've, we've talked about that one. I? I think overall, I really enjoyed the episode. I think we'll, we'll uh, spoiler alert, You know, I think we'll say that about both of these because both of these were pretty smooth, good episodes in my opinion. But um, yeah, let's move on to ep- uh, episode eight, that old black magic. Okay. So we open up with the crew visiting a commerce planet, uh, again, looking for supplies. That seems to be a recurring theme. Uh, and this time that, that includes a cure for Rigel's flu. Uh, a merchant named Liko tells Zan that he has just what they need. But meanwhile, Crichton encounters a jester who approaches him saying he knows uh, a lot of things about him, including that he's looking for a way back to Earth and is being hunted by the peacekeepers. The jester then says that the person who can help is named Haloth and that he should follow him. Crichton intrigued, is intrigued and all of a sudden is transported to a room by Haloth, who simply says that he wished him there. Crichton asks Haloth what else he can do, but he responds that he can't send him home or even point him in the right direction. But he talks about Krace and uh, who wants revenge on Crichton for his brother's death. Crichton says if he could only tell him and make Crace make understand, Hal often says that he could let Crichton talk to Crace and disappears before Crichton can ask any more questions. Meanwhile, Crace receives a communication from Peacekeeper High Command containing orders for him to stop the pursuit of the escaped Leviathan, leave the uncharted territories, and return to Peacekeeper Command for new orders. Lieutenant Teague confirms that she was ordered to observe the message in case Crace attempts to disobey upon which she should remove him from command, but says that, this, that until that time, her loyalty is to her captain and leaves. Haloth appears and brings Krace to his chamber, where he shows him Crichton and says Krace can have him, but at a price. Dargo and Aaron find Crichton unconscious, and she tells him to go get Zan. Haloth tells Crichton that he has bad news and transforms into another person named maldrus and brings Krace to him. Meanwhile, Dargos found a girl who saw Crichton with someone, and Liko knows that it was Maldus. Krace tells Crichton he's here to kill him and attacks him with one of the spears in Maldus's chamber. Krace manages to slash Crichton's hand, and in reality, Zan founds Crichton with the same slash on his hand. Liko says Maldus is an evil sorcerer that feeds off pain and death. He taps into others' life energy. He invaded this planet and killed off half its population, subjugating the rest. He says Maldus is invincible, And before Maldus came, Lico was a high priest, but his powers were not strong enough to defeat Maldus. Xan asks him to guide her to use her abilities to hurt Maldus. He says to do so, she must have the intent to hurt him, maybe even kill. He says she's not capable of that. She grabs his face and angrily says she once was. Maldus tells Crichton that Krace offered him bigger stakes than Crichton could. Now Krace is here, so he must deal with him. Krace attacks Crichton, but uh, but Crichton tells him he didn't murder his brother. He turns the attack around on him and has Kreis where he could kill him, but insists it was an accident and lets Kreis go. Xan forces herself to hurt a beast, but she can't finish it off. She says she's evolved past the hatred to hurt others. Liko says, nope, she's merely suppressed her, those feelings and she's just scared of them. She says she thought that, uh, the thought that she could destroy Maldus terrifies her. Back to Crichton, he explains to Kreis what really happened and he says Krace knows his pod was inferior to the Prowler. Krace says he charged it, but Crichton says that's not true. Maul disappears and shows Krace his father, who calls Bailar and Tuavo to him, because the recruiter is here to pick them up. He tells Bailar to stay close to Tuavo and protect him. Bailar promises to, but before the peacekeepers take him away, Crichton realized that Krace and his brother, the two people we've been seeing, didn't choose to be peacekeepers but were forced to as children and were taken from their home and family. Kreis insists that being chosen for a peacekeeper duty was a great honor, but is clearly hurt by the memory. Another vision shows Tuavo saying that it's an honor for him to serve with his brother. Crichton wants Maldus to stop this, but uh, Maldus then shows Tuavo dead and blames Crichton for it. This enrages Kreis and the chase is back on. Zahn tells Aaron and Dargo that she can stop Maldus, but she wants another option even though she knows there isn't one. She is upset that she will have to use her evil to destroy another evil, but she knows she has no other choice. Crichton tells Krace that Maldus is feeding off of them and that he thrives off of Krace's desire for Crichton's death. Crichton asks Krace to listen and says he understands that he is torturing himself because he should have protected Tuavo, but it was an accident. Krace says it doesn't matter, that Tuavo must be avenged and swears Crichton will die at his hands. Maldus admits that he feeds off the life force of others and death is like the main course. Zahn apologizes to Lico, and when Rigel complains over the calm about his remedy, they join and cause Rigel pain together. Zan says that part of her enjoyed it. Crichton is still trying to reason with Crace, saying that it, he won't be satisfied if Maldus kills him, and suggests a truce and that they work together. Krace pretends to agree, but then attacks him again. Rigel performs the Heimerian Ceremony of Passage on Crichton's body and declares him dead, claiming all of his possessions. Maldus is getting low on energy and tries to get Crichton to kill Krace saying that if he does he'll let Crichton go. Crichton gives in and agrees he's done talking to Krace and will kill him. Maldus leaves Krace to Crichton and they begin to fight. At that time Xan and Liko start their ritual but as Crichton is almost ready to kill Krace, Maldus sends him back to his command carrier. He says he finally got Crichton to do what he wanted. The carrier will bring death on a massive scale. Maldus goes to kill Crichton but Zan appears to stop him, saying she made him tangible, and Crichton punches him, turning him to dust. Crichton wakes up on Moya with Rigel, who says he just saved his life. Crichton kisses him out of happiness to be back. Liko is dying from helping Zan, but before he passes, he thanks her for helping the greater good. On his ship, Kreis tells his doctor to omit this incident from his logs, and he won't report his utter failure to diagnose and treat him while he was away. He asks Lieutenant Teague if they had any other communications from High Command, and she confirms that no one else knows he has been recalled he kills her with breaking her neck with ease. Krace then calms Lieutenant Orne to go deeper into the Uncharted Territories. Xan tells the crew that merely dis- they merely dispersed Maldus and that he will be back together someday. Erin apologizes for mocking her courage, and she says Xan's more of a warrior than she ever thought. This disturbs Xan, and she hastily leaves. Erin then asks Dargo what's wrong. And he says that by calling her a warrior, she could not have cut her more deeply. Crichton makes a recording for DK. Hey, DK, uh, that was Crichton's best friend from back home. Uh, remember him? Uh, saying he could convince Grace if he, could just, he thought he could convince Crace of the truth if they spoke face to face. But now he doesn't think Crace will stop until one of them is dead. Zahn tells Crichton that before she became a priest, she was a savage. She thought she'd never have to resurrect that again. He says that she had to in order to defeat Maldus, but she can once again suppress those feelings. She says she doesn't think she can. John asks if he can help and moves towards her, but she holds up her hand and Jack Crichton jerks away in pain. In a disturbing tone, she tells them none of them can help her. She apologizes and leaves while Crichton looks shocked at what happened. Uh, some interesting trivia for this episode. Um, for all you Shakespeare nerds, Halos spoke in iambic Pentameter, a style of verse which appears in many of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, Also, the producers were concerned about the credibility of their main characters, which is what led to Crace not appearing after the premiere until this episode. Quote, we didn't want him to be like the character of Lieutenant Gerard in the Fugitive TV series, who's on the trail of our hero. If he keeps missing our people every week, it diminishes him as a threat. But if he catches them or our people escape, for some reason he decides to let our people go, then he's not much of a villain. Also, Virginia Hay, who plays Zan, counts this episode among her favorites. Also, Brian Norris, the stunt coordinator, spent two hours coordinating the fight between Krace and Crichton before the cameras could begin rolling. And uh, last of note, I'll mention that uh, Pilot uh, does not appear in this episode at all. So what do you think, Eric? Thoughts on this episode?
0: Yeah, like you had said about the past episode, yeah, these two are awesome. I mean, these are some of the best ones we've seen so far, especially this one, because this one is just full of backstory, character development, yeah. We have our big bad again, Kray's, which is cool. That they explained, at least in the trivia, that why we haven't seen him since episode
1: one. So you, you kind of want to dole him out every so often as a little, a, a little hook, you know? Yeah, I kind of equated that to oh, I never can remember the name of the character, but the the general who's always chasing the A team, right? You know, at, at a certain point, you don't they're no longer a threat because you know you know that if when they do show up, it's an easy escape because uh, the show's got to keep running. So it's neat to have the the character reintroduced and then um, the plot device obviously gives them a good way to send him back to his ship. Again, we still don't know how far apart we are, but they still get, to, you know, it still has that impending threat on the horizon that, that we're going to have to resolve. So that's that's a really neat way to keep it going. I guess uh, speaking of that, that's obviously the main
0: focal point of this entire episode is, you know, Crichton and Craze together in the same room, you know, not really physically, but I guess mentally, whatever, you know, whatever Maldus did to them. But, you know, they get to
1: finally just have it out you know verbally physically <laughs> emotionally yeah it was it was all over the map um I, I definitely really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad we also mentioned the choreography because I thought that a lot of the compared to some of the stuff we've seen even in this show and others you know tv shows at the time you know I think they did a good job on the fights and the I was never terribly confused about what was going on I kind of was able to follow the fights which sometimes that gets lost especially in tv shows but it did have me also questioning you know did uh, Maldus have a way to not just feed off of, but maybe also enhance the, the character's feelings because there were a couple points where you think it logically Crichton should have been able to make sense and break through to Kreis and that never happened. If, if anything, they kind of regressed and were even more at odds than we were before. I, I don't know. I just thought maybe that might be a cool power that they didn't really emphasize, but might've been going on. Yeah, they did kind of dance around it to some degree
0: because when they were standing, when, when Creighton and Kreis Crichton and Craze. <laughs> <where,
1: you know, laughs> that sounds like past, a sitcom right there, Crichton and Craze. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, no, the the Odd Couple. No, that's, <laughs> that's already been done. But yeah, when they were standing off like, on each other against each other, and Crichton almost got through to him. He's like, "Look, you know, my stupid little janky pod. There's no way that could stand up to your Prowler. You know, it was an accident. You know, it was. I'm sorry. I didn't. If I could reverse it, I would." And he's, you can see it in his face. He's almost yeah okay that makes sense but then yeah that's when maldus throws the vision of craze and his brother back when they were young getting conscript- conscripted by the peacekeepers and then later kind of preys off of that older brother Crace against his younger brother you know you have to protect your younger brother you, know, you got to watch out for him you know now whether craze got his brother onto his command by pulling string because he was a captain or if it just lucked out that way but yeah, I'm sure Kreis feels guilty that you know he, you know he did he couldn't protect his baby brother that his baby brother's dead, this guy did it, you know I have to re- I have to get re- revenge whether I want to or not. That's just you know whether it's cultural or whatever or Mal just got him whipped into a frenzy or whatever. But then
1: yeah, it's it's over at that point. Kreis is like I'm done, I'm gonna kill you. I don't care. Yeah, yeah and that brings up an interesting point because seeing Kreis's backstory, I I just didn't realize in my brain this was a militaristic society and they were you know trained from childhood to be soldiers and here we see that no they were these these brothers were conscripted or their father signed them up or one way or another it it wasn't a voluntary thing it was almost a a surprise or a unexpected event for them to to be enlisted and I thought that was an interesting shift in way the way I perceive the peacekeeper culture
0: yeah, or if it's like they go to school, they take tests, and then the peacekeeper command looks at the results, but like, oh, these are you know qualified people to become peacekeepers or, or whatever. But it it did make you really feel for Kreis. You know, Kreis isn't just this mustache twirling you know bad guy that's just out for revenge because he's evil. You know, it's 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 guilt. You know, he you know he he didn't protect his brother, and that's what you're supposed to do. the The older kids supposed
1: to protect the younger kids,
0: right? In in any kind of
1: family. Yeah, and and saying that out loud, I, I just kind of jumped on the fact that this reminds me a lot of at least not, maybe the, the enlistment part, not the characters themselves, of Ender's Game, because you've got a, a society that you know shows up with this kids and, and enlists them. So again, may or may not hold up, but that that just jumped in my head.
0: And I guess also not the mustache twirling part, but just the understanding his psyche that, you know, he's going to come after Crichton at all costs. I didn't quite see it coming, like, the second time in, in the last scene where his second-in-command's like, you know, no, no one else knows anything. Okay, good. And he just like, snaps her neck, dead. I I guess it probably would have happened back in that first scene, the first part of the episode, if she said, yeah, you know, I told the Peacekeeper Command, yeah, we'll, we'll come right back. And he's like, no, no,
1: you're not. Click. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that one caught me off guard, too. I was really expecting her, him to be like, okay, good, we're not going to tell anybody and she, she'd be his confidant. And instead, no, he. I guess he finds it easier to hide a body than to worry about her talking. Yeah, because you kind of wonder how he's going to explain that to the, the new second-in-command
0: when the, he brings that guy in or something. It's like, you know, hey, Bob, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She just fell over. I don't know what happened. <laughs> know. Or, or or he's going to be the big evil guy and be like, you know, you know, she tried to kill me. I killed her. You know, take her away. I don't know. Whatever.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a Vader field promotion, right? Okay, now you're the... Admiral or whatever. So, hopefully, you deserve better, right? It. It. There also were a lot of insights, in my opinion, into to the Peacekeeper High Command in this episode because since we really haven't seen Crace, we haven't really seen a lot of what Peacekeeper official Peacekeeper philosophy is or policy is on on pursuing them. And we see here that they actually don't have any interest in in pursuing the Leviathan, and they want to call him back. And Crace is going to Captain Ahab and and go out on his own. But at the same time, you know, it just makes me even more interested in what peacekeeper high command is actually up to and and what do they what what is their society like you know we've seen we've seen the the brute and and how their weapons are made and all the different tentacles that they seem to have into all these societies even in these unknown regions but it'd be nice to kind of see even more about what they're up to and do they have a higher part to play in the plot besides just this one rogue captain
0: yeah, it's like, you know, going back to the, you know, the Star Wars analogy, you know, are, are they the Empire? Are they, are they subjugating other societies or planets? Or are they like what they are? Peacekeepers? Are, are they like the, the, the police or the, the military of this set of worlds or whatever? But then, yeah, apparently we do have at least some leeway for Craze. They must've given him some time to go hunt down Crichton or the escaped criminals in Moya. And then like, okay, you've been gone for however many months or <laughs> cycles. Or half cycles, as we learned uh, last episode. But yeah, now is it okay? You've had your ta- you've had your chance. It's not working out. Time to come back home. Yeah, now they're cycling back to another place, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's being redeployed now that he's uh, incompetent and can't capture five escape prisoners. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, like the the Star Wars analogy there. It, it does make you wonder, you know, is that a marketing ploy? Is the, the the peacekeeper's name just you know somebody in in marketing got a gold star that day or? Is that actually was it our job description, or was it originally a job description? And we just progressed past peacekeeping to something worse. You know, did they start out good? I, I can make up a whole backstory here if I just keep going. So, yeah, and you know, it's fun to, to
0: play around that kind of world until you learn otherwise. But I guess, speaking of, were they always that way or changed? We'll we learn more about Xan that apparently she wasn't always a priest because she says she was a savage before she was a priest. So, also playing around with writing my own backstory or whatever. Maybe that's when she was the the herself the self-proclaimed anarchist that she said she was arrested for, or part of what she was in prison for.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of good points there. I mean, we get the the ending with with Crichton where she actually used pain to get him to back off. So obviously she's changed, right? I mean, from the beginning of the episode where she was unwilling to even cause pain to a creature in a cage. I don't know what that thing was supposed to be, a bird or whatever. Yeah, some kind of like two-headed bird that was, yeah minding his own business, just being a happy little bird. And, yeah, then, and, and yeah. then, you know, she progressed to causing pain at a, quite a distance to Rigel to on a whim just to get Crichton to, to leave her alone, um, invoking pain. So hopefully they'll continue picking that up and we'll see more of it. But she, she definitely should have been changed going forward from this episode uh, and probably not in a good way.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's almost too good of an arc or a story arc to pass up if you're a writer for the show. And yeah, I mean, Crichton... I want to say he. I guess he was kind of naive. He's like, "Well, you know, you did what you had to do to, you know, save us from malice But now you can just block that away. You just put it away now. No problem. Just, just forget all about it and move on." And she's like, "No, you don't get it. I can't just, you know, flip a switch."
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see where they go from there for sure.
0: Yeah, because cause, it's was, it was great seeing like her evolution through the episode. She, she knew she had to do this. She didn't want to. Just the conflict, you know, and her, you know, in her, in the anxiety, the I guess anger, indecision, you know, trepidation but then she knows that she, she, she had to do it to save everybody and, and yeah she did. It,
1: and but but you know, but but at what cost right and, and to be honest for most of the episode i was expecting actually up until the end i was expecting the, that red guy whose name i've completely escaped on that she was working with the, their priest to turn out to be an aspect of Maldus and be can the whole point of this exercise was to get her to let loose and cause pain and give in and uh, i was kind of surprised when he turned out to legitimately be uh a good priest character good in quotes if his intent was to cause pain you know there's there's questions there but that that was my read on the whole episode was that that was that was his goal and that he was an aspect of Baldus to some uh, some form
0: yeah no that's good I, I didn't pick up on that but yeah that, that'd be cool because that was kind of Maldus's mo is to like psychologically mess with people and like wear them down because you know eventually you know Crichton, you know two or three or four times you know had kreis you know, dead to rights, let him go, like, I'm not gonna do it. And then he he has kept getting beaten down, beaten down by Maldus, and finally he's like, Okay, fine, you win, I'm gonna kill him now. You know, I have no other choice when I mean, he probably did, but maldis Maldus just got through to Crichton, and he just gave up and submitted to his will. So yeah, it could have been the same idea that you know Zan was probably, you know, the, like we said before, the moral compass, the the moral center of Moya's crew, so he had to, to break her down. You know, it's quite an accomplishment.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, it, whether that was in the show or not, that's that's an interesting way to look at it. And, and she definitely has something to deal with going forward. And of course,
0: comparing you know, our sci-fi franchises, you know, is Meldus like the Q of Farscape, possibly? You know, he's this all-powerful, maybe, being. Obviously, he can transport people's spirits across however many systems, light years or not. I don't know how far away the ship was, but. He seems to obviously have telepathy because he knows all about Crichton's, you know, about earth and wanting to get back. He said he didn't know how to get him back or where to go, which he's probably lying. I mean, if he's, if he's that powerful, he probably has some idea
1: maybe or how to get Crichton home, but why does he care, right? He's not gonna tell him that anyway. Yeah. I mean, they didn't set up a, a definition for how vast his power is, but it's definitely beyond our characters, right? I mean, no one else we've seen in this show has that level of power. And, and those type of characters, whether it's mystical, like, like we kind of get a feel for here, or if it's um, hyper-advanced, like in the case of Q, where it's evolved to a, a higher level, it, it's always interesting. Those make great foils for these type of shows because it, it gives you a, a, a what-can-be or a higher power that can't be fought just with lasers and physically punching them normally, right? I mean, it took, a, it took mystical power to make him punchable at a, at a weak point. So it'll, it'll always be interesting to see if he comes back, if they reuse that or not. So. Yeah, it's kind of like you, you, you can't out-muscle him. You have to like outthink him or just out, outlast him.
0: And yeah, I'm, I was trying to think, Do I remember him coming back in any of the seasons I watched? And I, I don't remember, but that doesn't mean he didn't. I just don't remember. Or I, I didn't tie it back to this episode because I never saw it before. So it'd be interesting to see if they bring him back or if this is kind of like one of those, yeah, we got this super powerful guy
1: that could do a lot of things. Yeah, maybe let's not go back to that again. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this a little too much one and done, but even so he's always out there, right? I mean it it's a it's a thought in the back of the character's heads
0: at least, yeah, because I mean he's he's not dead. they said he's just dispersed out there and he will he'll eventually reintegrate and he'll be back messing with somebody again. so who knows? And I guess going back to the last episode where we said Rigel got some a lot of better character development, here he's kind of back to being in the comic relief where. He's just doing his normal thing. Okay, he's gonna write John off. Okay, John's dead. I, I declare you dead. I'll perform the Hainarian rite of passage or whatever it was, A little modified. So he's not—he's not quite the full Hainarian. He's—he got like you know the same kind of version, but at the end, because he did that, it's like, well, now
1: all your stuff's mine. Thanks. Which which raises the question: How much stuff does John actually have? Right? I mean, one one yellow NASA jacket uh, or IASA jacket uh, that probably won't fit, Rigel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it is. A, it's more. It does fit with the character. You know, it, he's definitely. It's not that he's regressed as much as he's still himself, right? Which is good. You, you're kind of wanting to still be Rigel.
0: But. Yeah, he, he's recovered from his emotional roller coaster last episode, and now he's back to being his normal self. And then also when John wakes back up again, he's like, you know, I brought you back to life. <laughs> and John's like, I don't even care. Thanks a lot, Fluffy. Kiss. <laughs> he, like, kisses <laughs> him right in the face, and you know, Rigel's like, what? <laughs> Which, which was had a bit of fun for the puppeteer, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you kind of wonder what latex puppets taste like. I don't know. Anyway, don't get there. Moving on. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I mean, these were two solid episodes. It's only what this is the eighth episode, so they're they're really hitting their stride. Like I said before, from what I remember about the the pattern of Fire and you know we got a lot of solid character development, a lot of great action, and yeah, it's solid storytelling on these two episodes.
1: Yeah, these are definitely my two favorites so far. So um, if we can keep up this pace and even this level of improvement or, or just these same levels, uh, this will be a fun rest of the season.
0: So. Yeah, because we got like, uh, what, maybe 12 episodes to go in the season and then another 60-some. So yeah, hopefully. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: well, are they all, all going to be this good? No, because, you know, 22-episode season or whatever, you, you know, you can't. We know that, hey, at least they got two good ones here.
1: Yeah, yeah, a- except for, you know, the poor pilot, yeah, he got left out. <laughs> but uh, he did get a minute in the first one. But
0: Yeah, there wasn't much to do on this episode on the ship, so it was all planet side or in the little malice mild, mental prison or whatever it was. All right, any other
1: comments or statements? No, I, th- I think we've we've praised these quite a bit. These were, were two great episodes, and uh, I'm looking forward to next week. Yep, and speaking
0: of next week, so next week we're up to uh, Season 1, Episode 9, dna mad scientist and then season one episode 10 they've got a secret and uh, i would tell you that pay attention to the wikipedia order instead of the amazon order but finally or at least this time they match so amazon and wikipedia both have these as episode 9 and 10 so hopefully no more confusion i think it's like one more time it flips but otherwise the rest of the season it's pretty much the same order in both places
1: yay yeah yeah, I, I won't promise no more confusion because we're on this show, but uh, hopefully the season order won't be the cause of confusion.
0: Yeah, I'm always confused that this that, that goes with the territory, but yeah, at least this time, episode-wise, they aren't confused. Right. All right, so that's your homework for next time, and we'll see you next time.
1: Goodbye.